<laughs> hey now, what up though? It's Jay Scott Smith here, the host of the People's Podcast, JSC Radio. And you might be wondering why I call it the People's Podcast. Well, I've got a brand new reason for me to call it the People's Podcast because I'm putting the future of this show into your hands. This show is now on Patreon. And what Patreon is, it's going to help you the JSC Radio listener, the JSC Radio follower and fan contribute to the show in whatever way you see fit. That's right, looking for people to help keep this show moving. Whether you want to donate $1 an episode, hell, $1 a month for $5 per episode, I'll shout you out on this show and you'll even be able to vote on exclusive polls and exclusive half episodes that's right jsc exclusives you'll get to hear those half episodes before anyone else for ten dollars or more per episode now it gets fun because you get to be a sponsor on this show you got a business you want me to talk about it i want you to sponsor my show for ten dollars hit me up send me the script i'm putting you over plus you get all the other cool stuff that comes with it $25 an episode, same thing applies, except this time you will become an official segment sponsor. Do you want a segment of this show sponsored by your business? Of course you do. That's why you want to hit me up on Patreon. For more information on how to become a sponsor of JSC Radio, go to patreon.com slash JSC Radio. Patreon.com slash JSC Radio, and you can truly help this become the People's Podcast. This is JSC Radio. You were handcuffed, Stone Cold Steve Austin, after the match was over. Look what happened. They had to restrain you. They had to handcuff you. And look what you're doing. Look what sort of gestures you're making with your hand. Look at that. What kind of a competitor? What kind of a man does something like that? And, and as far as our reaction is concerned, I would suggest, however, with all due respect, To our Canadian fans, next week back in San Antonio, Texas, your home state, you're likely to get a different reaction. To hell with all due respect to the Canadian fans. You can damn well bet your bottom dollar it probably will be a different reaction in San Antonio, Texas. The little handcuffs, shackled, stone-cold Steve Austin. You can put my arms behind my back, but you can't shut up the fingers. I'll tell you exactly what I want, when I want, and that's the bottom line. (laughs) Check it out. This is JSC Radio. Ladies and gentlemen, boys and girls, children of all ages. Hey now! My name is Jay Scott Smith, and this is the 48th episode of the People's Podcast. This is JSC Radio. It's time for our first ever retro review hey now welcome my friends to the podcast that never ends is this is probably going to be one of the longest episodes if not the longest episode i've ever done but trust me it's going to be worth the journey first things first man you're messing with the words let me get a shout out of course to patreon.com patreon.com slash j s c radio be sure to hit that up to help Keep this show going. JSC Radio on Patreon. Want to shout out all the podcast providers. Of course, SoundCloud.com slash JSC Radio. Find JSC Radio on iTunes, a.k.a. Apple Podcasts. Look us up. You'll know where to go. Also, don't forget we're on Stitcher Radio. And for those of you who have Androids, we are on Google 
play. This is JSC Radio, episode 48, episode 48. And this one, ladies and gentlemen, is the retro review. I mentioned it last week. This was originally going to be episode 47, but instead, certain circumstances kind of led to me bumping this show up a week. But with SummerSlam having just passed this past Sunday, I came up with the idea having listened to all these wrestling podcasts that I listen to a lot of them, shout out to all of y'all, I got the idea that, you know what, while this is not a pro wrestling podcast per se, I want to be sure to be true to my roots, and I decided to try something different. So, every time there's a major WWF pay-per-view, excuse me, WWE pay-per-view, what I'm going to do is I'm going to jump into the Wayback Machine, and I'm going to review an older version of it. And the first installment of the JSC Radio Retro Review is SummerSlam 1997. Now, SummerSlam 97, of course, is best known, unfortunately, for it being the night that Stone Cold Steve Austin was given a tombstone by the now late Owen Hart that left him temporarily paralyzed. But that entire event and everything that led up to it and the entire vibe surrounding 1997 in the WWF, as it was known then, is what I'm going to be hitting on. But before I jump off into this, if you think I wasn't going to crack this mic open and not have at least a couple of seconds for that ridiculous trade, just ridiculous trade. Remember we did a show a few weeks ago talking about Kyrie Irving deciding he was done in Cleveland? Initially, when Kyrie Irving said he was done in Cleveland and he wanted to be traded, I thought, you know what, they'll they'll smooth it over, they'll work it out, they'll open the season with Kyrie and Bron playing, Cleveland will win a bunch of games, and they'll be good to go, and Kyrie ain't going nowhere. Well, it's a good thing I didn't put money on that because Kyrie's ass got traded two days ago as we record this. It was two days ago. And not only did he get traded, he got traded to the Boston Celtics. You know how little the Cavaliers think of the Celtics that you're willing to send that guy to a team that you just basically skunked in the conference finals. And in return, amongst other things, they got Jake Crowder, they got Ante Zizic, they got Isaiah Thomas. No, not the real Isaiah Thomas, the the little mini version of Isaiah Thomas, the one who had become a folk hero in Boston. IT4 is what he called himself. The man just went through a hellacious year. His sister died in an accident. This this cat basically became a folk hero in Boston. He was at least somewhat kind of in the MVP conversation. They managed to get the Celtics to the number one seed in the East. We saw how well that did them, but got under the number one seed in the East. And now he got hurt during the conference finals and he got shipped off to the Cleveland Cavaliers about, what, two months before the season starts? You don't normally see an NBA trade like that in late August. And you really don't see a trade like that between two teams where one team just kicked the crap out of you. We'll just take your point guard off your hands because our point guard is tired of dealing with LeBron James. That is wild. And the only thing no, the only thing that's wilder... and It's like I don't want to say this, but I almost have to say this. Boston is slowly creeping up on Cleveland as the least liked city on this show. Say what you will about those idiots in Cleveland. 
seven years ago when they burned LeBron James's jerseys in the street because he left to go to Miami. And look, while it looks pretty outrageous and pretty dumb, I can kind of see why they did it. I can see the anger in Cleveland fan because at that time, that was your best shot at winning something was Bron walking out the door to Miami. And then he went down to Miami and won two titles and got to the finals four times before coming back and fluking his way to a ring two years ago, well, last year in Cleveland. I can see why you're pissed. I can see why those simps in Oklahoma City were pissed off, pissed enough to burn Kevin Durant's jerseys when Durant made the free agent decision, the smartest free agent decision anybody has made in years, by the way, to get up, to get off a sinking ship in Oklahoma City, go up to Oakland, join the Golden State Warriors, and essentially become option one on that team that has like five different options. And guess what? You went out and won a world title. Smart decision. But I can see why people in Oklahoma City are pissed off enough to burn his jerseys and catcall him during games. Because, you know, that's how it works. What I don't understand, though, Boston, why the hell are you burning Isaiah Thomas's jersey in the street? Don't worry, I'll wait. Why are you burning his jersey in the street? Isaiah Thomas didn't want to leave Boston. He was traded. It's not like Kyrie Irving who said, get me the hell out of Cleveland. Can't blame him, by the way. He's, you know, Cleveland. Thomas was a folk hero in Boston, or he was becoming one. He, like, did not want to leave. By all things I understand, he was fine there. But Danny Ainge, being the ruthless riverboat gambler that he is, and by the way, he's not always the smartest man in terms of making some of these deals, he traded him. And that's strange. That sounds a whole hell of a lot like what I've basically been yelling at you people about for more than a year. For all of you who talk that, oh, he should have been loyal. Kevin Durant should have been loyal. You should have been loyal to your team. Be loyal to Oklahoma City. Be loyal. Be loyal. Isaiah Thomas, a guy who's already been traded twice in his career, once from Sacramento to Phoenix and then from Phoenix to Boston. Isaiah Thomas found out what being loyal is like. That's what being loyal gets you. Now, Isaiah Thomas is lucky. He got shipped up. To, he, he basically leveled up. He got shipped to the team that just waxed his ass in the conference finals. Like, literally made him look like a child during the conference finals. He didn't go there of his own free will. He was traded to the Cavaliers. Traded and did not ask to leave. He had every intention on seeing his contract through, getting more money, and maybe being a Celtic for the rest of his damn career. Instead, what happened? He got traded. He got shipped out. At least they traded him to a good team. They could have traded his ass to New Orleans. They could have traded him to Sacramento. They could have picked him up and shipped him to the Brooklyn Nets. And by the way, the Brooklyn Nets, that damn draft pick is getting passed around like a blunt. That damn unprotected draft pick is just getting handed off like like a blunt at a college party. Everybody's getting a hit of that damn thing. 
But that's what happens. Isaiah Thomas could have ended up in Brooklyn, and he would have been able to do nothing about it. They could have shipped him off to whatever team they wanted to ship him off to. They could have shipped him to Detroit, like you know, like they did Avery Bradley. They could have shipped him back to Phoenix. They could have sent him to Utah for Gordon Hayward. They could have traded his ass anywhere. Anywhere. They could have sent him anywhere. They could have traded him to Orlando. He just happened to land on his feet in Cleveland. But that's why I get all over you morons and simps talking that loyalty sh**. All right? Stop that. These teams ain't going to be loyal to these players. So stop expecting these players to be loyal to these teams and your city. Before we get done with this and I get off into what we're really here for, the retro review of SummerSlam 97, I'm going to go over to the Twitter feed. That's twitter.com slash Radio. Follow me on Twitter at Radio. You can also get at me at jscottsmith. But let me break down for you exactly what LeBron James, the beneficiary, by the way, of the Isaiah Thomas trade, had to say. Quote, and I want to make sure we get all this down because people don't quite understand how stupid they look when they do this. The burning of the jersey thing is just getting ridiculous now. The man was traded. What do you not understand? And he played in a game after his sister's tragic death. Gordon Hayward paid, paid his dues. I have to kind of, you know, edit this thing. Paid his dues as well and decided to do what's best for him and his family. Gordon Hayward got his jerseys burned in Utah, by the way, too. And that was pretty dumb, but at least he left as a free agent. So I can kind of see the logic there. He put in the work and got better, became an all-star, etc. If these guys weren't good, you'd be the first one to say, get them up out of here. Man, beat it. When we decide to do what's best for us, it's cowardly, traitor, etc. But when it's on the other side, it's business, huh? Oh, okay. Man, do what you feel is best for your profession, love, family, happiness, and continue to hashtag strive for greatness. Look, man, I haven't always been the biggest fan of LeBron James, but if that dude didn't just speak so much damn truth to power, I don't know what the hell else to say. If you're going to burn jerseys, don't burn jerseys of a guy who got traded. He didn't leave on his own. I'd expect better from the so-called best sports city in the country like Boston is, albeit I'm currently living in what I would consider the second best sports city, and I was raised in the best sports city in the country, the Motor City. But I'm going to keep my mouth shut. I'm done talking about this. Coming up after this quick break, it's time for the first ever JSC Radio Retro Review. We're kicking it back to August 3rd, 1997, two months after I graduated high school and about 27 days before I started college SummerSlam 1997. This is going to be an ambitious little project of mine. Let's all go for the ride. My name is Jay Scott Smith, and this is the 48th episode of the People's Podcast. This is JSC Radio. The retro review starts after this quick break, and my man Doc Illingsworth, who's presenting the sounds on this show, will take us into the break. This is JSC Radio.
Check it out. This is JSC Radio. What are all the things you witness online in a day? Cats playing piano, selfies on your feed, your friend's picture being turned into a nasty meme that's been shared 50 times, 51, 52. When someone's being bullied online, it's hard to know what to do. Now you can speak up with the witness emoji. It looks like an eye in a speech bubble, and it's in the symbol section near the clocks in your phone. You'll let the world know it isn't cool, and you'll let your friend know you care. Learn more at eyewitnessbullying.org. Brought to you by the Ad Council. Hey now, it's Jay Scott Smith here, the host of JSC Radio, which you can now hear on Stitcher Radio. That's right, Stitcher is radio on demand. Now you can download the free app today, and it's available on iOS, Android, as well as Nook and Kendall Fire. You can take JSC Radio anywhere. The app is free. You can listen anytime, anywhere. Now, if you're wondering what Stitcher is, Stitcher is an award-winning free app that lets you listen to all of your favorite shows, plus discover 40,000 news, entertainment, and sports shows, such as JSC Radio. You can create custom playlists. You can rate and review this show and others on Stitcher. Please drop a friendly review on the show. Not only is Stitcher available on all smartphones and tablets, it's also in over 4 million car dashboards. It's on demand and on the go. No downloading, no syncing, no wasted memory on any of your devices. You can stream your favorite podcasts, like JSC Radio, for free on Stitcher. You don't have the Stitcher app? Simple. Go to Stitcher.com today or check out the App Store on whichever device you use. Stitcher Radio. Be sure to check it out. This is JSC Radio. You, Owen Hart, you unfortunately have the distinction of facing the toughest SOB in the WWF, Stone Cold Steve Austin. You know, I can really give a damn whether it's Stone Cold Steve Austin or anybody else because the bottom line is... Bulldog and myself, tonight, will regain the WWF Tag Team belts that we should never have lost. And as for you, Austin, at SummerSlam, you better pucker up, son, and get your Blistex ready, because at SummerSlam, you're gonna kiss my ass. Hey, 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 hey. Oh, the 90s, weren't they wonderful? Welcome back to JSC Radio. Jay Scott Smith here. Rest in peace, Owen Hart. That... My friends, is what we're getting into for this week's episode. JSC Radio episode number 48, the retro review of SummerSlam 1997. Once again, want to thank each and every one of you who listened to the show on Apple Podcast, on SoundCloud, on Stitcher, and on Google Play, and anywhere else you happen to find this damn podcast floating around out there. Be sure to support the show at patreon.com slash JSC radio. And don't forget to hit up the mothership, jscottsmith.com for all your J. Scott Smith needs. The site's going to start popping off a little bit more now that I'm back and kind of settled and back in the saddle here as we start to head into the fall. We're heading into September and football season is coming up. But we ain't talking about football. We're talking about SummerSlam 1997. And here's how this is going to go. The reason I decided to do this was because I love pro wrestling. And I felt that of all the things I do in this podcast, the most fun episodes I've done have revolved around pro wrestling. If you recall, earlier this year, I did my second WrestleMania special. And in the midst of that one, it was the top five 
favorite WrestleMania matches of all time. One of those matches was from the year 1997, which was maybe one of the more pivotal years in the history of professional wrestling. You have to think about it. At that point in time, there were two major companies. The World Wrestling Federation, now known as World Wrestling Entertainment, and World Championship Wrestling, WCW. Yes, ECW fans, I know ECW was there. ECW was a distant third. They were around, and their influence was being felt across the industry in both companies. But ECW was a solid three, and that's what it was. And they had already been flirting with the WWF, and they had been getting poached by Eric Bischoff and WCW. But 1997, 20 years ago, brought us so much goodness. So when it came time for me to come up with an idea to do a show, and I knew it was going to be one of the episodes before 50, I figured why not do a retro review? So every time, I'm not going to do this every week or every month, but every major pay-per-view, and WWF slash E has four years, the Royal Rumble, WrestleMania, SummerSlam, and Survivor Series. So there's going to be four of those a year, plus I'm already going to call this out now, next year there will be a fifth one for King of the Ring 1998. It'll be the 20th anniversary of everybody's favorite pro wrestling moment, of the last 20 years, Undertaker tossing Mick Foley off the top of Hell in a Cell. And Jim Ross making a call of a lifetime. We'll get there. That's June 2018. Right now, it's August 2017. And we're jumping in the Wayback Machine to go back to August 3rd, 1997. Meadowlands Arena in East Rutherford, New Jersey. Also known as the Continental Airlines Arena at the time. It's SummerSlam 1997. So... A lot of podcasts review pay-per-views and review shows, and they go bit by bit, detail by detail. I don't have the time to go through all of that, but what I will do is I will set a lot of scenes for you. And the summer of 1997 in the WWF, by this point, we are a little more than a year, almost a, yeah, a little more than a year after Stone Cold Steve Austin's infamous Austin 316 promo at the King of the Ring in 1996. We are, I would say, into the fifth month, the fifth full month of the Bret Hart heel turn. And might I add that this was in the midst of Bret's best work. The show opened with the montage of the deep voice guy talking about essentially Bret going from valiant hero of the WWF to this bitter, angry Canadian bastard that he turned into. He was raging at the world because guys like Shawn Michaels and Stone Cold Steve Austin, these anti-heroes, these classless, tacky, young, I mean, considering that Shawn was probably just turning 30 around this point, relatively young, brash, new generation huh, of superstars in the WWF had suddenly overshadowed all the work he had done. Because people tend to forget, Brett was in his early 40s. And he was doing by far his best work. But we all talked about it back during the WrestleMania show. Brett versus Steve at WrestleMania 13. The double turn of the ages. It wasn't just simply the moment that WrestleMania got its swagger back. It also made Steve Austin and set loose a fire in Brett that turned him into one of the best damn heels in the business. I put 1997 Bret Hart up against any heel of the previous 25 years. That's how good 
Bret, Bret Hart was. Bret turned into this bitter leader. He was able to reconcile with Owen, who he'd been beefing with for, what, three, four years up to that point. Got the Hart Foundation together as a crew, where it was Bret, Jim the Anvil, Owen, Brian Pillman, and the British Bulldog. Got them together and turned them into this scourge. And it opened up this very weird thing where, for some reason in 1997, WWF did a lot of shows in Canada including a pay-per-view, the one prior to this one, in Calgary, Alberta, at the Calgary Stampede. The Hearts were babyfaces in Canada and pretty much everywhere else around the world, but they were heels in the United States. And it became this thing, this war, that took off between the United States and Canada. So there was a lot of that. And on the other side of this thing is The Undertaker. Remember him? Undertaker was the world champ coming into this thing, and this is the main event, Bret versus The Undertaker. But there's also... A little caveat. Shawn Michaels, who, as you recall, couldn't find his smile for a while early in 1997, by this point has now returned and even had a brief moment as world tag team champ with Stone Cold Steve Austin before he and Brett got into a fist fight, a legit one, in the locker room one night before Monday Night Raw because Shawn ran off at the mouth and pissed Brett off to the point where he jumped him. Somehow this beef, which we all know where it culminates, and please understand, I'll talk about where that goes later, was really, really churning up and getting nastier by the second. And that brings us to East Rutherford, where Shawn Michaels is suddenly the special guest referee of this world title match. And that, my friends, is where we open the show with Pyro. They don't do that anymore in this company. And three men on the microphone whose voices will sound somewhat familiar to you. Welcome, everyone, to SummerSlam! They are jam-packed to the rafters at the Continental Airlines Arena! Welcome once again, everyone. Vince Savannah here along with good old JR and, of course, Jerry the King Lawler, and who knows what's going to happen here tonight. Oh, what a maneuver, damn it. That's right. Vince McMahon... Good old JR and Jerry the King Lawler on the call for SummerSlam 97. And a little tidbit about this. This would be the final major pay-per-view that Vince would call. Vince never called another pay-per-view after October 97. So this was the last of the big-time pay-per-views that Vince was a part of. Our first match of the night featuring another face which should be kind of familiar to y'all, especially in 2017. Fresh out of the doghouse from the curtain call to having won both the Intercontinental Championship and eventually King of the Ring, it's Hunter Hurst Helmsley, also known as Triple H. And he's taking on one of the original WWF faces of Foley, Mankind, in a steel cage match. Now, by this point, Mankind, who had come into the company just a year and a half earlier as this insane heel, he attacked The Undertaker the first night, beat him in the Boiler Room Brawl, at the previous year's SummerSlam in Cleveland in 1996 and had an incredible match with Shawn Michaels along the way too, now he's gone full babyface because the one thing about the WWF in 1997 is little by little, the Attitude Era seeds were starting to pop up out of the ground. It wouldn't be till later on in the year and into 98 that the Attitude Era fully took hold, but a lot of the Attitude Era shit was starting to slide to the surface little by little. And one of the things they did was have Jim Ross do a series of interviews with Mick Foley, humanizing mankind. And 
people knew it was Mick Foley. They just didn't know the depth that Mick Foley had, including coming up with the dude love thing, which is what he wanted to be when he was a kid. Obviously, being mankind in the company at that point. And of course, who can forget Cactus Jack from WCW, ECW, and all over Japan. So Mankind, at this point, is full babyface against Triple H. And also, we should note, this is pre-DX Triple H. Are you ready? No, 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 no. They weren't ready for that for at least a couple of months. But this is pre-DX Triple H, and he immediately tries to escape through the door when this match starts. Now, this is one of those old-school bright blue cages. In fact, this might have been one of the last times they used that bright blue cage to start this thing, and Triple H tries to make his way for the door. He's cut off by Mankind. This rivalry started at that King of the Ring that Hunter eventually won. And another fun little nugget, I mentioned Dude Love that Mankind was also wrestling as at the time. This shows you the depth that they had there. Mankind is wrestling as Mankind. When Foley puts on the Dude Love gear, he's one half of the World Tag Team Champions of Stone Cold Steve Austin. We've Fast-forwarded through a couple of minutes of this thing. They've just been fighting back and forth. Foley makes his first attempt to really get out of the cage. He's able to clear the top of the cage, get halfway through when China, who at this point was still Triple H's bodyguard, runs around, climbs up the cage, cuts him off, and punches him square in the nuts as he gets to the top. At that point, Triple H climbs to the top, gets a hold of him, and from the top of the cage executes a nasty-looking, Superplex. By the way, for those of you who want to follow along with this, make sure you get on the WWE Network, go to SummerSlam 1997, and follow along. Let's have some fun with this thing. Shout out to the WWE Network. But yeah, Triple H gets up there and decides to superplex Foley from the top of this cage. And when I tell you he superplexed him off the top of the cage, it was like dropping a 300-pound bag of cement. Foley took a nasty, nasty bump. And as we all know, This would be far from the first time and far from the last time Mick Foley would take a nasty-ass bump off a cage. Lots of headshots here, by the way. To show you, along the way during this show, I'm also going to note a lot of the differences between 1997 WWF and 2017 WWE and how you realize how much this country and this world has changed since 1997. Because people talk about 1997. I talk about 1997 like it wasn't that long ago. And 1997 was very modern times, late 90s. This country was getting a lot more tolerant and a lot more liberal. But damn it, we weren't really there in 1997. We'll continue. Lots of headshots here. That's one of those things. This was back when dudes were still able to deliver unprotected chair shots to the dome piece. And it wouldn't be a big deal. Case in point, after Foley and Hunter have exchanged opportunities to get out of this cage... Foley was able to hit a standing suplex and a headbutt, drops Hunter, lays him out. Triple H gets crotched on the ropes, trying to get out of the cage. His leg gets tied up, so he can't move. Foley then finally decides to make his move for the door, and he got greeted by China. Now Mankind, all he has to do is go through the door. He's in there, China. All Mankind has to do is go through the door, and he's going to win this thing by the fall. The official has the door open. Oh! China grabbing that door right into the top of the head of Mankind. And the referee face first into the steel steps. As you heard there, he tries to get to the door. He crawls to try to make his escape, pokes his head out between the middle and bottom rope, 
just in time to have China sprint on over and slam that steel door right off the top of his head, unprotected, nasty shot. And for good measure, she then took out referee Jimmy Corderas by throwing him into the steel steps. So there went Foley's opportunity there. Just after that, China then reaches up and grabs a chair, lobs it over the top into the cage. Into the cage. So you already knew what was going to happen. Triple H gets this chair, attempts the pedigree, but gets reversed into the cage by Foley, knocking China off the bars as she was trying to scale the cage to get in herself. Foley then finally makes a move after having dropped Hunter with a double arm DDT on the chair. Foley makes a move to get out of the cage. And that's when he decided he had to do something for the culture because it was his childhood dream. As Foley was trying to scale that cage, there was this chant going through the arena of Superfly, Superfly, a very problematic name in 2017, but back then, dude might as well have been a superhero. The Superfly, Superfly chants sent Foley back to the top of the cage where, as you heard, that thunderous elbow drops on Triple H. Again, this was in a time period where they did not have pinfalls in cage matches in the WWF, so he had to get out of the cage. He drops the elbow right on there, gets up off of Foley, starts to drag the, just to drag himself back over, rescales the cage again, as China now runs back through the door to try to drag Triple H out. Foley scales the cage, hits the floor, ball game over, Mankind wins via escape at 16-13. He tried it, tried it, pulling hands up, off the door, Mankind's going down. So the match is now over. We have our first win of the night. Foley laid out, beaten to just beaten to shit, laying out there on the ground. He could barely even get his thoughts together. And then magically, the dude love music suddenly plays. Foley hops up, does his goofy dad dances all the way up the aisle to his music playing out. And that does it for match one. So again, Mick Foley, Mankind, in 16 minutes, 13 seconds, wins the opening match, the cage match, against Hunter Hearst Helmsley, who would eventually be known as Triple H. So now along the way, we move from that first match over to Todd Pettengill. For those of you who remember watching the WWF in the mid-90s, Todd Pettengill was their quirky, wacky sideline host. He also would voice a lot of their montages. He would do a lot of backstage interviews. He essentially was the guy who replaced Mean Gene Okerlund when he went to WCW. Well, Pettengill 
was also good for hosting these awkward and odd segments. There will be one later I will definitely talk about. And one of the segments he had to host featured the governor of New Jersey. In 1997, WWF was finally returning to the state of New Jersey to do televised events. They would do house shows in Jersey, but they weren't doing TV in Jersey because the state had a tax on things like pro wrestling and other major events. The governor of New Jersey at the time, who was not very popular and had the name Christie, but not that Christie, the other Christie, Christie Todd Whitman. She was the governor who, along with the New Jersey legislature, helped get rid of that tax, bring the WWF back to New Jersey, and Vince McMahon and the crew had to show her some love, and clearly the people of Jersey were very happy to see Christy Todd Whitman stroll out for SummerSlam. Could you imagine if Chris Christie had shown up at a WWE event? The boos would be about a thousand times louder. Not only was Christy Todd Whitman given a nice corny interview with Todd Pettengill, she was also handed a World Wrestling Federation championship belt by the late, great Gorilla Monsoon. Governor, you are the true people's champion. And tonight, on behalf of the World Wrestling Federation, we'd like to make you honorary World Wrestling Federation champion. Yeah, right. Maybe we shouldn't take down that cage. How do you feel about a little cage match, Governor? Monsoon gives her the belt. It leads to a very awkward scene where she and the headbangers are standing up there with Pettengill talking about her defending the title. But overall, it went off without a hitch. Whitman got her belt. She got the hell out of there. It was all good. Also, one other nice little nugget to toss out there. This was Todd Pettengill's last show in the WWF. He was done after that night. He now currently works in radio in New York City. The man ain't doing too bad for himself. And actually, from all accounts, he's a pretty good dude. We now get ready for the second match of our evening. This one brings us Goldust versus Brian Pillman. Goldust, by this point, has now shaken the whole androgynous, ambiguously gay character to now become more of this weird gold, like a human Oscar, but he's got a hot wife, Marlena, and Brian Pillman was trying to scheme on Marlena. It was almost like they carried over a storyline from WCW and brought it here. But Pillman had basically been harassing and chasing after Marlena for months at a time. Goldust had finally had enough, and they were going to scrap it out at SummerSlam. Of note, this was Pillman's only SummerSlam appearance, and it was his penultimate pay-per-view appearance, as unfortunately, Brian Pillman would pass away on the day of bad blood on October 5th, 1997. So just two months later, almost to the day two months later, Brian Pillman was gone. Jerry Lawler, who earlier in the year gave one of the more outlandishly offensive promos you will ever hear, cut, cutting a promo on Goldust that included a word that starts with the letter F and rhymes with shag, and said it live on Raw. You will not be getting the sound of that during this show. Jerry Lawler was, of course, at his most problematic. And this was when he was still smarmy heel Jerry Lawler. He wasn't kind of old man Lawler that he is now. He didn't become screaming puppies Jerry Lawler for another year and a half. But dude was in his absolute element of problematicness during this whole thing, including referring to Dusty Rhodes as old dust. This match was pretty played by the numbers. Oh, and one other thing, the stip in this match was, if Pillman won, he would get Marlena. If Pillman lost, he would be forced to wear a dress because in 1997, there was no worse punishment 
than being forced to wear a dress in public. Pretty by-the-numbers match that ends up finishing when Goldust botches a sunset flip attempt and then Pillman saves it, but unfortunately cannot save himself. Oh, look at that! And Goldust collapsing Brian Pillman! Out of his face! Attempted sunset flip that did not pan out. Pillman saw it coming. Pillman offering the resistance now to Goldust, and Pillman in the ropes. Oh! Did you hear that? Marlene and Nelly! Here in that smack you heard was Marlena's purse catching Pillman right upside the head. He falls backwards. Goldust rolls him up and gets the one, two, three, the pin, and the win. Your winner in 717, Goldust. And for good measure, Pillman grabbed the mannequin because, by the way, the dress he was going to wear was on a mannequin outside of the ring. Again, watch this on the WWE Network. It's just as ridiculous as it sounds. He grabs the mannequin, smashes it to pieces, and rips the dress off all the way up. It was ridiculous. It was outrageous. But that's what the WWF was in 1997. Pillman lost. And yes, that next night on Raw and for about the next month of TV, Brian Pillman wore that damn dress. And yes, the insults toward him were as awful and problematic as you could imagine. None of that shit would fly in 2017. A lot of that shit wouldn't have flown in 2000. That shows you how bad it was. Match number three. Speaking of problematic, we have ourselves a tag team match featuring the Godwins, Henry and Phineas, you know, hog and pig, versus the Road Warriors, the Legion of Doom. Road Warrior Hawk, Road Warrior Animal. So out come the Godwins to start this thing. And again, you have to see this on the WWE Network for you to totally get where I'm going with this. The Godwins are out first to the slow string banjo music because they had just turned heel about two months prior to this. There's no more Hillbilly Jim. There's no more dancing around with your John Deere look and your slop buckets. and all. No, now they're out there and they're pissed off angry rednecks and that's what they are. And what do pissed off angry rednecks in 1997 do? Pissed off angry rednecks in 1997 come to the ring and unfurl a confederate flag. Yes, they unfurled a confederate flag and waved it walking all the way down the damn aisle. This, this was not 1983 in world-class championship wrestling in Dallas. This was 1997 in New Jersey. Two their credit, there was a gentleman in the crowd who saw the, the Godwins pull out that god-awful traitor flag and immediately whipped out his American flag. The boos were raining down on these guys. So I'm sure it was for the desired heat. But the Confederate flag being whipped out in a major arena in 1997 did not cause people to bat an eyelash. Because in the further weeks after this, they started wearing Confederate flag shirts into the ring. Shirts! Are you kidding me? The whole entire beef, by the way, between the Road Warriors and the Godwins was during a match on Shotgun Saturday Night. <laughs> Remember that show? On Shotgun Saturday Night, the Godwins and the Road Warriors faced each other. They hit their doomsday device. You know that really dangerous spot where Animal would get a guy up on his shoulders. Hawk comes off the top rope, clothesline. Dude does a full 360 ass over tea kettle onto his back. They, they pin him for the win. Well, when Hawk hit Henry Godwin... He didn't rotate fully. He came down awkwardly on his head and legitimately broke his neck. So that beef was over a neck injury. And only a few months later, 
Godwin's back out there. This shows you where this company was in terms of injuries at the time, too. Guys weren't missing a year plus for neck injuries. Not yet. That was still two, three years away. Henry Godwin suffered a legit neck injury, and he was back inside of five months. Like, this was, this was kind of scary. This was also, by the way, the first SummerSlam appearance for the Road Warriors at that point in five years, since 1992, when they defeated Money, Inc. at that SummerSlam in London, England, and then Hawk went on a bender and basically disappeared, and the Legion of Doom would not be seen again for at least four years in this company. The Godwins, like I mentioned, had just ditched Hillbilly Jim, and the whole focus was really on re-injuring Henry Godwin's neck. These are the Road Warriors. They're the baby faces in this equation, and their whole plot is to re-break the neck of the angry redneck who was waving the Confederate flag. And might I add, they had patches on their knees that were also Confederate flags. 1997, y'all. So... After having a doomsday device broken up because they'd gotten Henry up for it, but they stopped it, LOD was able to get Phineas out of the ring, got Henry back up, and instead of a doomsday device on a guy whose neck was legit broken a couple of months earlier, they hit a spike pile driver. A spike pile driver on Henry Godwin, putting him down for the pin and the win. The LOD, the Road Warriors, whatever you want to call them, get the win in 9:15. Coming up after this break. SummerSlam 97 continues with an attempt to give away a whole lot of money. Ken Shamrock losing his shit over dog food and Todd Pettengill gets to have a conversation with HBK. My name is Jay Scott Smith and this is the Retro Review of SummerSlam 97 and we'll be back after this. Check it out. This is JSC Radio. Did you just look down at your phone? You did it again, didn't you? You know, you're flying down the road in a three-ton hunk of steel, and a text takes your eyes off the road for an average of five seconds. At 55 miles per hour, that's long enough to travel the length of a football field and cause some serious damage. Turn it off. Trust me. Whatever it is, you'll live. Learn more at StopTextStopRex.org. Brought to you by the Ad Council and the National Highway Traffic Safety Administration. Hey now, what up though? It's Jay Scott Smith here, the host of the People's Podcast, JSC Radio. And you might be wondering why I call it the People's Podcast. Well, I've got a brand new reason for me to call it the People's Podcast because I'm putting the future of this show into your hands. This show is now on Patreon. And what Patreon is going to help you the jsc radio listener the jsc radio follower and fan contribute to the show in whatever way you see fit that's right looking for people to help keep this show moving whether you want to donate one dollar an episode hell one dollar a month for five dollars per episode i'll shout you out on this show and you'll even be able to vote on exclusive polls and exclusive half episodes that's right jsc exclusives you'll get to hear those half episodes before anyone else for ten dollars or more per episode now it gets fun because you get to be a sponsor on this show you got a business you want me to talk about it i want you to sponsor my show 
for $10, hit me up, send me the script, I'm putting you over. Plus, you get all the other cool stuff that comes with it. For $25 an episode, same thing applies, except this time, you will become an official segment sponsor. Do you want a segment of this show sponsored by your business? Of course you do. That's why you want to hit me up on Patreon. For more information on how to become a sponsor of JSC Radio, go to patreon.com slash jscradio. Patreon.com slash jscradio, and you can truly help this become the People's Podcast. This is JSC Radio. A woman who has brought New Jersey back to prominence. A woman who has brought the World Wrestling Federation back to New Jersey, accompanied by the Headbangers and WWF President Gorilla Monsoon. Please give a warm Garden State welcome to Governor Christy Todd Whitman. Yes, indeed, and there she is, ladies and gentlemen. I can tell you right now, they weren't saying boo burns. They were laying the boo birds out on her that night. Jay Scott Smith here. Welcome back to the 48th episode of JSC Radio, a.k.a. the Retro Review of SummerSlam 1997, August 3rd, 1997, at the Meadowlands Arena in East Rutherford, New Jersey. So, so far, oh, by the way, once again, want to thank each and every one of y'all for staying with me on Patreon. That's patreon.com slash Radio. I appreciate anyone who subscribes to this show. If you subscribe on iTunes, Apple Podcasts, simply search JSC Radio, hit that subscribe button, And be sure to leave a five-star review and a comment that helps get the show out there and get it to more listeners. So please, do me a solid. That's an early birthday gift for me. Get on Patreon and become a patron, and then get on iTunes and drop a five-star on me. A brother will really appreciate it. Also, want to shout out those of you who are checking us out on SoundCloud.com, SoundCloud.com slash JSC Radio, and on the mothership, jscottsmith.com plus if you are on google play that's where you can find me and on stitcher as well stitcher radio go to jsc radio and boom hit the subscribe button you ain't gotta do a damn thing so so far we've been through triple h and mankind in the cage match with mankind winning we've had christy todd whitman come out and get booed and get handed handed a world wrestling federation championship belt we have gold dust and brian pillman fight to see whether a man is going to end up in a dress. And, of course, we had the Godwins get all nice and racist while the Road Warriors were trying to break one of their necks. You know, just a typical night in the WWF in 1997. Oh, and also, before I keep going on this, I want to once again big up my man, Doc Gillingsworth. You've been hearing his beats as we've been heading into breaks all over the place. I want to thank him once again. Also, shouts out to, of course, the homies from Detroit City. Hoping to run into you cats when I'm back in the Motor City for the Labor Day weekend. So, as we head back in to SummerSlam 1997, we pick up things at the $1 million giveaway sponsored by Discovery Zone. Now, to understand what the WWF was on in the mid-90s, they were prone to give away shit during pay-per-views. This is the same company that two years earlier literally gave away a house during the first In Your House pay-per-view in 1995. So by the time we get to 1997, the company has started to get back on its feet. They started to regain that swagger that they had, but they're still giving away shit. So what we find out now is that we get to SummerSlam. Discovery Zone had run this promo where if you watched Raw and you had the right number and you set the right entries in, you could be selected to show up at SummerSlam, grab a key. Next thing you know, 
you might have won a million dollars. So this segment was peak Pettengill, by the way. It was Todd Pettengill, Sable, and Sonny. What a motley crew that is. And needless to say, this, this, this segment was not good. This was, this was a filler segment. This is the type of segment that these days on Monday Night Raw are usually filled with some sort of stupid gimmick like, a, like some sort of weird Sonic or KFC ad where you have a bunch of guys dressed up as Colonel Sanders and running around out there. That was better than this. It was a hell of a lot better. Some of you may remember Vince McMahon did the McMahon's Millions deal where every week they would have literally call people and see if they could win some of Vince McMahon's money. Think about this as McMahon's Millions, but with Sonny's boobs. So here's the whole thing. I'm not going to draw this out too much longer. I'll just put it like this. One of the winners just so happened to not even be watching SummerSlam at the time. Sonny, how am I supposed to dial? We know that uh, Mr. Pettengill will not be uh, a fast dialing specialist of any kind. You should have got somebody smarter to do this, like an eggplant or something. Uh, I got the number already. <laughs> Come on. We're calling you. Hello? Oh. Hello, is hey. Michael home? Just a moment. Just a moment. He's coming. He's coming? Yeah, oh yeah, he's coming. Let me see who we're calling here. Hello? Michael! Yeah. This is Todd, Sonny, Sable. We're calling. Are you watching SummerSlam right now? Oh, no, sir, I'm not. Oh, well, guess what? (laughs) It's all right. He's not. It's all right. He's going to be watching. You would think if you entered this thing, you would somehow find a way to get to a television to watch friggin' SummerSlam. But. Of all things considered, it should also be noted that what these people were doing is they were grabbing keys to open a lock to a box. That box was a casket. And that's fitting because this segment was dead on arrival. Oh, and one other thing. Nobody won the damn money. They all picked the wrong key. The winning key was number three. So if I had gone with my line number in my fraternity, I could have walked away with $1 million. We move on past that god-awful segment over to our next match, which is for the European Championship. Not out, one of the most humiliating experiences ever for King Shamrock. And here comes the British Bulldog. British Bulldog, if he loses this matchup, will be eating that can of dog food. His opponent and challenger from Sacramento, California, weighing 235 pounds. Yes, indeed. The British Bulldog, Davy Boy Smith, taking on. The world's most dangerous man as he was being built at the time, Ken Shamrock, who was about, I'd say maybe about a year, year and a half removed from the original UFC. Original. UFC, the one that 
when it was really no holds barred and no weight classes and you got sumo dudes fighting one of the Gracies and the Gracies beats the shit out of him. That, that's, the, that's the UFC that Ken Shamrock left behind to join the WWF. Now, people don't realize this, but Ken Shamrock was a professional wrestler before he joined the UFC. So when he came to the WWF, he knew what the hell he was doing. Basically, Ken Shamrock looked every bit like the badass monster that he was in the mid-90s. And he's one of the few guys, and, and people have these lists of best wrestler never to be world champion. Ken Shamrock is at the top of that list. Because how in that time period did Ken Shamrock not win the WWF title at least once? I mean, not even for a night. Not even win it at a house show, then drop it on a house show the very next night. None of that. Ken Shamrock was never world champion. Also, a little fun fact here. Later on in the year, when we get to, you know, the unpleasantness at Survivor Series, Bret Hart offered to drop the title to Ken Shamrock at a house show in Detroit. Bret was willing to do that for Shamrock. The company vetoed it. And, well, we'll get on that subject a little bit later on. Across from him is the British Bulldog who the prior Monday night on Raw decided that they were going to have an arm wrestling contest. And we all know how arm wrestling contests and wrestling usually end up with somebody in a fist fight and back then somebody getting hit in the face with a steel chair. Well, in the midst of breaking up this arm wrestling contest in which Bulldog hit Shamrock twice unprotected upside the head with a chair, once Shamrock was down, Bulldog jumps out of the ring, grabs a can of dog food, pedigree dog food, by the way, and pours it all over Ken Shamrock's face in the middle of the ring. Just leaves him completely laid out. That leads to the step where if the Bulldog lost the match, he would not only... No, check that. If Bulldog lost the title, he would not only give up the belt, he would eat a can of dog food. Now, one must understand where Ken Shamrock was at this time. Ken Shamrock was essentially Kurt Angle, but insane. So this was a virtual powder keg waiting to explode in this match. As the match went on, Bulldog and, and Shamrock basically just took turns kicking the crap out of each other. Shamrock tried to work over his leg. They end up on the floor. Bulldog and Shamrock are brawling on the floor. And then, like clockwork, once he got Shamrock down, after attempting to take him down on a couple of occasions, Shamrock was able to fight back, get to his feet. Bulldog hits him with a low blow. And then he goes to the announce table for the dog food, and you kind of guess what would go on next. The Bulldog stated he would meet Shamrock in the octagon or in the squared circle. It didn't matter. It's just another case of the Bulldog. It's not afraid of any man walking the face of the earth. Bulldog grabbed that can of dog food off the table, poured some of it on Ken Shamrock's face, 
while he laid on the floor. That basically was like smelling salt, as you heard there from Jim Ross. He jumped to his feet, beat the hell out of Bulldog, grabbed the can, smashed it over his head, triggering the DQ. Bulldog retains the European title in seven and a half minutes, and this thing might have been over in terms of the match, but Ken Shamrock was not done. They get back in the ring, and Shamrock continues just to pound on Bulldog, then puts him in a chokehold, wraps him up dead center of the ring, and refuses to break the damn hole. Like, that's it. Just was going to hold that chokehold on Bulldog the rest of the damn night. A whole crew of referees sprints into the ring. You got Tony Gurria jumping into the ring. You got Pat Patterson and Gerald Briscoe jumping in. And needless to say, it only got wilder. And extra points, by the way, to them ringing the bell repeatedly because back then, that's what you did when shit got a little too crazy. You ring the bell, hoping that it finally triggers them to calm down. Well, whether you like the Heart Foundation of British Bulldog or not, Bulldog's in trouble, I'm telling you. Bulldog is in big time trouble. Go up there and help him! He's changing color. Some Bulldog has lost consciousness, and this is dangerous. Shamrock, this is beyond athleticism. This is this is nothing but street fight. This is Shamrock has, has, has been embarrassed to the extent that he's resorted finally. The officials trying to calm Shamrock down. Good look, he's a nut. Oh, As you heard, the bells ringing didn't stop a damn thing. Shamrock absolutely loses his mind. It's German suplexes and belly-to-back suplexes for everyone who gets in his path. And that was the beginning of the crazy Ken Shamrock knuckle-up time gimmick that he had. And it worked really well for him for the next year. But at that point, Ken was going full spaz mode and totally lost it. So if you happen to be in front of Ken Shamrock that night, that's not something you wanted any part of. None. We kick to the backstage area one more time for Todd Pettengill as he's now standing here with a zebra-striped clad Shawn Michaels, the referee for tonight's main event, Bret the Hitman Hart versus The Undertaker. So obviously, Shawn, who's had a very weird and wacky year, suddenly feeling 100% spry once again, And he has some simple words for people who think that he cannot be impartial because one of the fun stips on that championship match, if he showed any favoritism toward The Undertaker and screwed Brett out of a championship, he would be banned from wrestling in the United States. Will you put your entire career on the line just to get even with Brett the Hitman Hart? You know, I don't know how many times I have to address this. There is nothing between Bret Hart and Shawn Michaels. Anything that was once there was settled last year at WrestleMania when I beat him. I am here to be an impartial, unbiased, fair referee. And nothing, nothing will get past the keen eye of Shawn Michaels. I did actually like how he slipped that little subtle shade in there, reminding everybody that he'd won the match the previous year at WrestleMania 12. 
while kind of staying away from that little minor detail that he kind of gave up the title rather than, you know, do the honors for Brett the following year at 13, which led to the Brett versus Austin match, which in a way actually helped make Austin bigger. But again, we'll leave that alone. Match number five on the night. Remember I kept saying the word problematic earlier, and I talked about the problematic things and how 1997 was a totally different world from what we're living in today? We get the match between Los Boricuas and the Disciples of Apocalypse, DOA. It's an eight-man tag team match because also what was happening at this point was that aside from the burgeoning Attitude Era, we also had a full-blown race war happening in the WWF. They didn't want to call it that at the time, but damn it, that's what it was. We have Los Boricuas, the Puerto Ricans, versus the DOA, the White Biker Gang, and this whole thing was really born of the Nation of Domination, the Black Guys, you know, the ones who were supposed to be like the Nation of Islam. 1997 WWF was f***ing weird. It was really, really weird. It, it, it was so weird and so problematic and just so out of pocket that you can see how the Attitude Era kind of sprouted from this. But I don't think people understand. 1997 into about early to mid-98 was really, really wacky because they still didn't know what the hell they were doing and they were just throwing things up against the wall to catch WCW. And one of the things they did was this whole race war thing because let's just call it what it is it was a race war but that shows you that this company just didn't seem to quite get it los barriquas four dudes who are puerto rican led by savio vega savio vega and miguel Perez and jesus castillo and unfortunately the other guy that i can't think of his name right now and that's messed up and i'll acknowledge your name when i write the blog post of this thing but los barriquas were four puerto rican dudes a couple of them were from new york but there were four Puerto Rican dudes. Why the hell are they showing up at Raw shows in Lowriders? I know I'm not Puerto Rican, but I've got a really good friend who is, and I'm going to take a wild guess that Puerto Ricans are not the Latinos that are in Lowriders. This shows you that this company didn't know shit about their Latino stereotypes having Puerto Ricans pulling up in Lowriders. I mean, they eventually got it right by putting Eddie Guerrero, who was Mexican, in a lowrider. But that wasn't for about, you know, seven years. Why were Los Bariquas in a damn lowrider? I get it, I guess. You know, I mean, DOA has bikes. The Nation of Domination. Those brothers just walk everywhere. So I guess you got to get lowriders or cars for the damn Bariquas. But why lowriders, though? But you got to understand once again where WWF was at this point in 1997. They were getting better by the week, but yet still getting steamrolled by WCW. They were in the midst of that infamous 84-week losing streak. Even though by the time you got to this point in 97, the quality of shows were starting to even out, but the ratings just weren't showing it. And they were still on the doorstep of the Attitude Era, but they were not quite there. So you're thinking, all right, we're going to throw some shit up against the wall. We got all these Puerto Ricans here. We've got a bunch of angry black guys there. We got four white guys, two of them with Nazi tattoos on their arms. What the hell do we do? I got it. Let's split them off into gangs, pal. That'll show that damn NWO. God damn it. So this is what we're looking at here by mid-97. And yes, one other fun thing to note. The white biker gang, you know, the biker gang that has the Harris brothers 
aka Skull and 8-Ball. The Harris brothers were walking around with SS tattoos on their arms. They're supposed to be the baby faces. Not the, not the Nation of Domination. Not Los Bariquas. The White Biker Gang, the DOA, were supposed to be the baby faces here. I'm not even going to go into this whole damn match. It was a cluster. Halfway through it, the Nation of Domination comes down through the crowd like the Shield. So basically, the Shield stole it from the Nation of Domination. It's not the first time a bunch of black guys have had something stolen from them, but I'll leave that alone. They come down like the Shield, get outside the ring, start stirring up shit. This was also the point where the Nation of Domination was Ron Simmons, D'Lo Brown, The Godfather, and Ahmed Johnson. The Rock hasn't joined up with them yet, but he's coming soon. And these four guys are outside the ring, and the whole thing fully breaks down when Chains, Brian Lee, a.k.a. the fake Undertaker from SummerSlam 94, gets in Ahmed Johnson's face and slaps him. Ahmed, pissed off, kicks the crap out of him, hits him with the Pearl River Plunge, a.k.a. the Tiger Bomb, on the concrete, rolls him back into the ring. Castillo gets the pin and the win at 9.08, the victory for Los Barricuas. Go back on the WWE Network. I'm not going to waste my time describing that match to you. I'm not. Because it, would be, it wouldn't be doing you guys a service to describe it. Go on the WWE Network, the WWE Network. What am I, Kurt Angle? The WWE Network, and go check that out. And you'll see, in all its racist splendor, Los Barricuas, the Nation of Domination, and the DOA. Coming up after this, we head into our final segment, and yeah, we're getting into the two most memorable things about this event. Stone Cold Steve Austin versus Owen Hart. And the World Wrestling Federation Championship match. Bret Hart, Undertaker, HBK the referee. And these two matches would basically set the tone for this company. Whether they knew it or not, it was setting the tone for this company for at least the next five years. My name is Jay Scott Smith. You're rolling with Doc Illingsworth on the beats. And this is the Retro Review, SummerSlam 97 on JSC Radio. We'll be back after this. Check it out. This is JSC Radio. After a few drinks, I'm taking it slow. Well, you're not fooling the cop behind you. What? Get ready to pay in .1 miles. Getting pulled over for buzz driving could cost you around $10,000 in fines, legal fees, and increased insurance rates. Nothing kills a buzz like getting pulled over for buzz driving. Because buzz driving is drunk driving. Brought to you by the National Highway Traffic Safety Administration and the Ad Council. Hey now, it's Jay Scott Smith here, the host of JSC Radio, which you can now hear on Stitcher Radio. That's right, Stitcher is radio on demand. Now you can download the free app today and it's available on iOS, Android, as well as Nook and Kendall Fire. You can take JSC Radio anywhere. The app is free, you can listen anytime, anywhere. Now if you're wondering what Stitcher is, Stitcher is an award-winning free app that lets you listen to all of your favorite shows, plus discover 40,000 news, entertainment, and sports shows such as JSC Radio. You can create custom playlists. You can rate and review this show and others on Stitcher. Please drop a friendly review on the show. Not only is Stitcher available on all smartphones and tablets, it's also in over 4 million car dashboards. 
It's on demand and on the go. No downloading, no syncing, no wasted memory on any of your devices. You can stream your favorite podcasts, like JSC Radio, for free on Stitcher. You don't have the Stitcher app? Simple. Go to Stitcher.com today or check out the App Store on whichever device you use. Stitcher Radio. Be sure to check it out. This is JSC Radio. Well, speaking of speaking of championships, what about you against the Intercontinental Champion Owen Hart at SummerSlam? Well, I'll tell you what, Owen Hart last night, Calgary Stampede, one, two, three, Stone Cold Steve Austin's looking up at the lights. I'll tell you this, and I want this put in the contract. Don't flinch, I ain't gonna hit you. I want this put in the contract. Bret Hart says if he gets beat, he won't wrestle in the United States again. Big deal. If I cannot beat Owen Hart at SummerSlam after the match, when he pins me one, two, three, if that happens, he can pull down his trunks, pull down his little panties, bend over and I'll kiss him right on his ass, right in front of the world. What? Put that in the contract. That's the bottom line. I'll kiss his ass if I can't kick it, and that's the way it's gonna be. This is JSC Radio. Welcome back. We're into the D block of this damn thing. By far, this is the longest episode of JSC Radio, or it will be by the time this thing is over. You're listening to the Retro Review, episode 48 of the People's Podcast. This is the Retro Review of SummerSlam 1997, and that is what was on the line, amongst other things, for Stone Cold Steve Austin. Once again, want to thank my man Doc Illingsworth. You hear the beat underneath me. My man Doc Illingsworth. Go check out his shit over at Illingsworks.com where you can get his music on Bandcamp right now. Plus, shout out to Detroit City. And naturally, one more time, be sure to support Patreon.com slash JSC Radio. And you can always go check out jscottsmith.com. Um, yes, indeed. So, we are into the home stretch of SummerSlam 1997. And we've already had enough foolishness and surprisingly shocking things go on during this show. And now we're into the final two matches of it. And needless to say, what what we're about to experience here going forward, I, I said it before the break, it's the two matches that essentially set the tone, A, for the rest of the year in WWF of 1997, and more so, helped set the tone for at least the next three to five years of what this company would be, these next two matches. What you heard there was Stone Cold Steve Austin in the ring with Vince McMahon on July 7th, 1997. It was the night after the Canadian Stampede in your house pay-per-view where during the main event, which was a 10-man tag team match, Austin got schoolboyed and pinned by Owen Hart to end the match and set off one of the wilder celebrations you would ever see in Calgary. I think the last time they celebrated like that in Calgary was that one time the Flames won the Stanley Cup. It was it was nuts. But Austin, as you could tell, was in a rather salty mood that following night, and that was the proclamation he made that if... <laughs> If Owen Hart could beat him, he would kiss his ass in front of the world. Earlier, you heard Owen's retort to such a thing, where he told Steve to, quote, get his blistex ready. And this was all a part of setting up 
what was looking to be an awesome match at SummerSlam. You got to remember, Austin had spent the better part of six, seven, eight months chasing Bret Hart all over the place, having two legendary matches with him, one at the Survivor Series in 96 and then the Encore at WrestleMania 13 earlier that year. Now you've got Owen into the mix. He's the Intercontinental Champion. He'd just beaten Rocky Maivia, who, as we know, was about to become The Rock within a couple of months, to win the belt. So you have Austin, who already has this beef with Brett, and in turn, anyone who happens to be associated with Brett. He also walks into the match as one half of the World Tag Team Champions. That tends to be forgotten. Again, as I mentioned earlier, he and Dude Love are the tag team champs at this point. Because 1997 WWF is just plain effing weird. So they're trying to figure out where Austin is going to go from here. And from a behind-the-scenes booking standpoint, they needed something to do with Austin while they hashed out whether it would be Brett or Sean that would be eventually the guy to, you know, send Steve to the top. At this point in 97, that was still up in the air because you didn't know whether it was going to be Brett or Sean there by the end of the year. That, of course, obviously changed along the way. So we find ourselves here in East Rutherford as we get ready for essentially the semi-main event. Gentlemen, yes, we're live. SummerSlam from Sold Out, Continental Airlines Arena, heart and soul. And here comes Owen Hart being greeted by some 20,213 WWF fans. So out comes Owen Hart. At that point, the Intercontinental Champion. He's arguably, if not the second best wrestler in the company, maybe the third best behind Brett and Sean. Dude could work his ass off. Just an amazing wrestler overall. Got to understand here, Austin was at his true peak of his overall physical abilities coming into this match, which, of course, this is something I have to stress for what we know happens later. The stip, of course, Austin would kiss Owen's ass if he lost. Austin was also the tag champ. So we've laid all that out. You've got Owen in the ring, and Austin is on his way there, but he has to do an interview with a rather familiar name that we all know and love today in 2017. Michael Cole is trying to track down Stone Cold Steve Austin as uh, Owen. Uh, okay, Mr. Austin. Mr. Austin, Stiff Stone Cold, I need a quick word with you before the matchup tonight. Not a word for you. Are you prepared? Are you prepared to you put know, your reputation on the line tonight? You would have to kiss Owen's backside if you lose in front of all these people. 20,000 people, a million people out there on pay-per-view. Mr. Austin, are you ready? Just what? You're fixing to kiss my ass. You're going to get your little ass out of my face. You got that? You and your stupid little boat. You don't impress me none, you little piece of trash. Uh, Michael Owen. Perhaps a little there. Yeah, baby. That's Michael Cole, the current quote-unquote voice of Monday Night Raw. Michael Cole was on his first night as a backstage interviewer. He would eventually be the guy who replaces Todd Pettengill. And the first guy he gets is Steve Austin. And I have to believe 
that he was set up for the sting and set up for a rib there by Austin because he tore his ass up. And after he got done with some light work known as Michael Cole, it was time to hit the ring. something so classic about hearing Austin's music, about hearing that glass break, the original version, original version of Austin's music, where that glass breaks and it's just that basic guitar riff and he comes out and he's doing as he calls the BMF walk down to the ring and he, it was just something so dope about that. There was so much about him, like if you go back and watch this on the WWE Network, just watch how he walks into the ring the swagger and the presence that he shows. It doesn't make a difference what race you are, what age you were. Austin was the man. He didn't have the world title. He wouldn't be world champ for about seven, eight months at this point. But he was the man. It's just that everybody else wasn't quite ready for it. So this match starts off quickly. Owen jumped Austin when he got in the ring because he flipped Owen off right when he did his four corners thing that he normally does. He jumps him before the bell and here's the thing about a match like this, when you watch this match, because I've seen this match hundreds of times. I've gone back and watched SummerSlam 97 just dozens of times over the years since it first aired. I watched it live on pay-per-view that night. Obviously, in the last 18 years, it's really eerie. It, it is. It's just eerie watching Owen Hart, especially this match, because you know what was coming in retrospect. And... It seemed to be that that whole thing was getting telegraphed along the way by our announcers, particularly good old JR. Austin holding the back of his head. Austin may be having some problems with his neck. Steve and Owen were having this great match along the way, but that was like a running theme. It's that it started when JR mentioned it, and then Lawler started talking about it, and then Vince made a really big point of talking about Austin's previous issues with his neck and how Owen was working the neck. Because Owen, just like Brett, was a technician, and he loved to work a body part. Brett would always work over your leg, over your knee, over your ankle. Owen was going for Austin's neck, whether he realized it or not. And that's how it just kept rolling. But it was a really good match. And you notice how well Austin moves in this match. People forget how quick Steve Austin was. Like, you have to go back to watch his WCW stuff. Especially the matches he had with Pillman and the matches he had with Ricky Steamboat. This dude could work his ass off and he could move. And he was still very fleet of foot, very quick in that ring. Just watch how crisp his moves are, how hard he hits, how stiff he tends to work in there. And Owen is the perfect partner for him. Because Owen was a bumping and working machine, too. They're back and forth in the ring, the constant switches, the constant exchanges, and then, then it happened. And it seemed like 
it was just a typical innocuous move. There was a reversal. Austin hits off the rope for a side slam, and that's when things go terribly, terribly wrong. Let's see what Austin can do with Eamon. No. How about that? A gun ring. It's at about this point that everyone in the ring realizes Austin's in deep trouble. Oh, it hurt. Stone Cold Steve Austin. He's done, you're right, he's done. And he could very well be. Now he's gonna kiss my ass. I'm afraid Austin is hurt. And hurt badly. At least Austin's legs are moving. He may have suffered a stinger there. So yeah, uh, you've seen the pictures, you've seen the gifs, you've seen the video of it. This was bad. I knew this was bad the second it happened. I'm sitting there at 17 years old, having seen The Undertaker hit that tombstone pile driver multiple times. Rarely does a guy's head hang low, because that's often what happens is, on moves like that, on moves like AJ Styles, Styles Clash. A lot of those moves that cause neck problems, power bombs, usually spur from guys either having their head in the wrong place, tucking it, not tucking it, or in the case of Owen Hart, letting Austin hang too low. And instead of doing the normal tombstone where Undertaker drops to his knees, which probably had Owen dropped to his knees, Austin would have been good. Owen dropped to his butt. And when Owen dropped down to his butt, he had Steve's head caught between his legs. Bam. Hit that mat. And it was it was a frightening, frightening scene. And for those of you who are watching along with this or simply watching the pay-per-view again, you'll notice that when it happens, Owen initially looks down and is like, uh-oh. And you can tell the referee, Earl Hebner, is like, uh-oh. And Vince at the table, uh-oh. Jim Ross at the table, uh-oh, about the only guy who doesn't seem to realize it is Lawler, who's still in full heel mode as Austin is just laid out, looking at the lights, barely able to move, and only after a couple of seconds did his legs begin to start twitching and he was able to get his feeling back, and that's what led to, as he put it, the ugliest damn pin of his life, because somehow, with all the other insanity going on, he doesn't know if he's going to be able to walk, if he's going to be paralyzed, if he's if he's going to be totally fine. He has the wherewithal once he kind of gets some sort of rudimentary feeling back in his arms and legs because he's laid there and he can't feel a damn thing below his chest at this point. He's able to get it back, turn around. Owen, who you have to give him a lot of credit for this, goes along with it knowing something bad happened, stumbles backwards, falls. Owen... Owen is down. Austin can barely press himself up long enough to get the quick three and the win in the Intercontinental Championship, which seemed almost immaterial by this point, in 1620. Austin. Somehow, and Austin now, and Austin driving. No,
you knew Austin was in trouble, but you didn't realize how much trouble he was in until later down the line. As they're trying to get him out of the ring, as they're trying to get him to hold the belt up, he can barely stand and he barely knows where he is. He was in genuinely deep water. It was not just simply something that affected him in the immediate moment after the match. It was something that lingered for a long time. He and Owen had well-documented issues with each other following this, and Austin, on multiple occasions, has attributed that pile driver to being the thing that shortened his career and forced him to retire in 2003. He once said that pile driver probably took five to seven years off his career. Here he is in 2014 explaining to Chris Jericho exactly what happened and how he felt at the exact moment his head hit that mat. You know, I bruised my spinal cord and it kind of made my uh, my reflexes in my legs a little different, you know, and a couple other you right. know, issues, uh, but not to get into detail. But yeah, I still, I still got some damage from that and, you know, I always will. But, you know, by and large, you know, for the most part, you know, I get around, do all my, my normal stuff that I do. I work out like a damn animal. Uh, don't get me wrong. I'm uh, probably in, in as good a shape or better shape than I've been in a long time. But it, it did wreak some havoc that, you know, it's kind of half-assed, ir- irreversible. Which is so ironic because it was right on the cusp uh, of you getting to become this super, super duper star. It must have been kind of a scary moment to know how close you came to not ever working again or walking even. Hey, man, when, when that happens, when you get dropped on your head, you know, the top of your head, it's like I watch a lot of football, and that's called an axial load, and that compresses a C3, 4, or 4, 5 vertebrae, and that's the number one cause of quadriplegia in uh, football right. players or, you know, in accidents. And a lot of people think a whiplash is what does it. No, it's not. It's getting dropped and compressing those nerves. And, uh, you know, on top of that, I had some spinal stenosis without a whole lot of room, that spinal cord to deal with anyway. So, you know, I'll tell you what, man, when you're laying in there in front of 20,000 people uh, and you can't move nothing and you look at the lights, it'll, uh, it'll scare the hell out of you. Yeah. And it, you know, kind of hurt, too. You know? <laughs> yeah. it, it, it was a tough day at the office, but, you know, hey, man, things happen in the ring, and that was mm-hmm. one of those things. But it, it wasn't fun, and it scared the hell out of me. But, you know, I, I, I look back and I watch that thing. I've watched that replay, man, a couple hundred times out there throughout the years. Really? Oh, yeah, for a while, you know, it helped me deal with, you know, where I was and, you know, uh, why I had to retire. So, you know, now I don't watch it at all. Uh, Sure. As a coping mechanism, back in the day, I did. Austin eventually had surgery in the year 2000. He ended up missing, essentially, the biggest money year ever in the WWF because of that neck surgery. He came back in 2001. He and Owen never really patched things up because he felt Owen didn't show enough remorse. Brett has long said that Owen was extremely remorseful, but he was so prideful that he didn't know how to go to tell Austin that he screwed up. So when Owen unfortunately died two years later, Austin did do that very heart-wrenching tribute on the infamous night after Raw, but he's always kind of had this thing with Owen. You heard heard him mention there, things happen in the ring. But that's years worth of just agony and pain there. And it's hard to know. Maybe he's talked it out with Brett and they've they've softened it up a little bit. But I know it's hard. And it's got to be. It's been tough. I mean, you do something like that and it lingers with you for the rest of your life. Owen only lived two more years. But I'm sure that hung over him for a long time. Austin, as we all know, was able to recover because he didn't have his neck broken, 
it was more or less his spinal cord was bruised. It was jarred. So his neck was not broken, but his spinal cord was jarred enough that it, it did a lot of damage to him. But he was able to recover. He eventually had to give up the Intercontinental title only to come back and win it later in the year. We'll get to that. Come back and win it later in the year, and then obviously we know what happened. He ends up winning the Royal Rumble in 98. Goes to WrestleMania 14, wins the world title, and he's off to the races. But it's so hard to just fathom that even after all that, he was a hair away. And we as pro wrestling fans were a hair away from maybe the single greatest run in the history of pro wrestling never happening simply because of an accident like that with Owen Hart. So this match is over. Austin has won the Intercontinental title. He's been led to the back by multiple referees and officials. He goes to the back. He doesn't know what the hell's going on with himself. Vince, is you can tell, is visibly shaken by this. Ross is shaken by this. Lawler is still in full asshole heel mode. He don't give a damn. He even made the comment that when Henry Godwin broke his neck, y'all weren't that upset. Because I don't think Lawler had a real idea of what the hell was going on with Austin. He was in deep water. But now, they have to switch gears because you have a world title match, your main event, waiting in the wings. I talked about this throughout the show. The world champion is The Undertaker. Bret Hart's your challenger. If he loses, he would be banned from wrestling in the U.S. Shawn Michaels is the referee. If he happened to screw Bret out of the championship, Shawn would no longer be allowed to wrestle in the United States. This was the second WWF title reign for The Undertaker, but this was the first time and maybe the only time that The Undertaker was ever seen or regarded as a third wheel in a situation. And mind you, he has the looming specter of his long-lost brother Kane lingering around in the background. We'll get to know Kane in a couple of months. But all this is happening, and that all this turmoil is surrounding this particular match, both intertwining worked and shoot things happening in the business, And that's not even factoring in what's coming down the pike in the very near future for Bret Hart, Shawn Michaels, and hell, even The Undertaker. So without further ado, it's time. Ladies and gentlemen, the following contest, scheduled for one fall, is for the World Wrestling Federation Championship. Introducing first, the challenger from Calgary, Alberta, Canada, weighing 234 pounds, Brett Hitman Hart. Stated, look out, here we go. Yeah. 
in between the intro for Brett and Sean, Brett decided that he was going to stop everything and demand a playing of the Canadian National Anthem, O Canada, which played without a hitch to largely a chorus of boos. Some people did actually sing along respectfully, but for the most part, that National Anthem got booed or yawned or sat through. It's amazing how that seems to happen to, you know, another country's anthem, and nobody thought it was a big deal. But God forbid somebody who looked like me decided to take a knee during a damn anthem like that. Anyway, as we move forward here, you've got Taker in the ring, you've got Brett in the ring, you've got Sean in the ring. He goes through the formality of, quote, checking each combatant, checking the shoes, the waistbands, the wrists, everything else. Taker, of course, still came to the ring in the big jacket. Didn't have the hat, but he came to the ring in the jacket. And when Sean did the whole show the crowd the belt thing, he shows the belt to Brett, who then grabs it and immediately drills the Undertaker in the head with it as he's trying to get the jacket off. We're underway. The match quickly ends up on the floor, as a lot of Brett's big matches in this time period did. If you go back and watch WrestleMania 13, about the first five to seven minutes of that Austin match were spent out on the floor. A lot of his matches on Raw were spent out on the floor. It was always something outside. This was peak heel Brett. Brett was in the middle of the best year of his life in 1997. Brett was so calculating, so cold-blooded, so mean. I don't, I don't think people realize, I don't think Brett realized how good of a heel he would be until he fully committed after WrestleMania 13 and became one of the biggest bastards his company had ever seen. So much so that people fell in love with him again. You think about how this is going on, and at the same time, there's a legit worry about Stone Cold Steve Austin because by now this point, Vince has announced that Austin is legitimately hurt and he's being taken to a hospital. Not a medical facility, a hospital. Vince was legit worried about this whole thing. Meanwhile, in the ring, the match settled in, and it was pretty textbook. Brett doing, as I mentioned earlier, just like Owen does, working body parts. In this case, he's going after Undertaker's legs because, you know, Undertaker towers over Brett, and he was chopping the redwood down to quote JR. JR said it multiple times. And one of my favorite things about this stretch of heel Brett were some of the different kind of moves he whipped out that he only used as a heel. And one of those moves was this thing he liked to call the python, where he would slap on the figure four leg lock, but it wouldn't simply be a figure four. He would put on the figure four while wrapping his opponent's legs around the ring post and then falling down. Just like Tajiri's tarantula, you're not going to get a win off of that, but you're going to inflict a lot of damage, and it looks really damn cool. Brett then got in the ring and gave Undertaker another figure four, which was greeted by all sorts of woos. This was 1997. Ric Flair had been out of this company for five years at this point, or just about five years. He was in WCW, but those woos just took off as soon as Brett put that figure four on. That shows you that even then, people knew that Ric Flair was the true God. And by the way, I hear he's getting a whole lot better, which is what this world definitely needs right now. So as the match continues, Paul Bearer decides he's going to pay the ring a visit. He shows up. Because remember, this whole Kane thing is kind of looming, I mentioned. We'll get to meet Kane in a couple of months. Taker's had enough of this noise, jumped out of the ring to attack him, and then Brett capitalized on it, as you would expect. Oh, look at the Undertaker now. Taking a page out of Bret Hart's book. Driving that knee into the Look out, Undertaker, quick as the outside. 
Undertaker. Oh. And Paul Bear crumpling down in a heap. Hope they don't. He just got knocked off the wall. Brett's back out on the floor. Undertaker's down. Shawn Michaels humorously says, as Paul Bear is laying there, Paul Bear says to the other refs who are trying to scoop him up and get him out of there to get his fat ass out of here. This is, oh, by the way, I should also note, this was pre-DX Shawn Michaels. Are you ready? No, 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 no. No, no, no. We aren't ready for that quite yet. Just a few more weeks after this. So Brett has slapped that python on Undertaker, pause my boy, he then gets Taker back in the ring, and by this point now, Owen and Pillman have wandered down to ringside. Of note, Owen did not look like he wanted to be there at all, for obvious reasons. Brett keeps working the leg over on Undertaker. Taker finally able to get, he's finally able to get away from Brett after Taker's just been taking a beating on his legs. He's able to get away from Brett, slips to the outside, immediately goes after Owen and Pillman. HBK is able to get both of these guys out of here and back up the aisle. And as he does so, Taker then catches Brett trying to jump in from behind. Taker drops him with a choke slam, gets back in the ring, and has a visible three count on Brett. But by the time Michaels gets back to the ring, Taker has already gotten up. He's angry and one hand Shawn Michaels from the floor back up onto the apron. It was rather amazing seeing him snatch up Shawn like this off the floor and immediately yells at him and argues. And in that point, Brett schoolboys Taker for a very convincing two count. It should be noted that as we've gone along here, Brett has actually been working pretty well with Sean as referee. Sean has actually called it pretty well down the middle. Back onto the floor they go again because, again, these Bret Hart matches stay on the floor. And this actually led to a pretty funny moment where Brett gets back out on the floor and attacks Undertaker and Sean just seemingly has started to have enough, and he decides to let Brett hear about it right there on the floor. Real hard now. Again, turning the motor up. Uh-oh. I'm getting... My patience is way thin. You get your ass inside, or you are out of here, Brett. If you were listening carefully or you're watching this on the WWE Network, you might notice that Sean, after admonishing Brett, then turns over and looks at a fan in one in just one fell swoop and tells this guy to kiss my ass. It's like you have Sean and Brett, who legit hate each other and are in each other's face during this match. They both stop to put the bad mouth on some smart-ass New Jersey fan sitting up front. Now, at this point now, Sean, and, and again, I will stress this. Sean and Brett's beef was very real. They're less than two months removed from having a legit fight in the locker room that got both guys suspended. Like, this was this was not just some, some hyped-up thing for pro wrestling. This was a real beef that they had, yet they were able to keep it professional just long enough in the ring. And speaking of which, we get back in the ring. Brett gets Undertaker down, goes for his trademark elbow drop off the second rope on the inside, but first turns to look at the crowd and fires up the double bird. I told you. Brett was a bastard. He was peak heel at this point. Flipping birds, yelling F you. He's all over guys. Like, this was Brett living his best heel life at this point in 1997. Fires up that double bird, drops the elbow. HBK continuing to call this match even the whole way, even as Brett is acting like a complete and total knucklehead. 
after hitting the elbow, Brett, for the first time in this match, makes an attempt to go for his world-famous sharpshooter. That's one of those moves that if you ever decided you wanted to wrestle in your living room or wrestle in your front yard with your friends, everybody knew how to put on the damn sharpshooter. And one of the things about the sharpshooter is once Brett got that thing on you, that was it. If you don't get to the ropes, you're done. So Brett makes his first move to try to set up the sharpshooter, but Undertaker is able to cut him off and get his hand on his throat and shove him out of this thing rather than get caught up in the sharpshooter. Now, that's one of the things that gets lost in all this. This SummerSlam was well-known, obviously, for the unfortunate injury to Steve Austin and all the other insanity. People tend to forget this was a damn good match with Brett and the Undertaker. This was an amazing damn match. Taker eventually chokeslams Brett into the ring from the apron after they've wrestled their way back to their feet. Brett tried to slip out to the floor again. Taker catches him, choke slams him by snatching him over the top rope. Bam, back into the middle of the ring. They continue to fight. Brett fights back to his feet. They end up on the top rope as Taker was trying to make a move for his world-famous snake eyes. Brett cuts him off, sets him up, and hits a superplex from the top rope. This is Bret Hart and The Undertaker. Superplexing The Undertaker off the top rope, and that leads to Brett attempting the sharpshooter again, this time getting it on. And remember what I just said about nobody getting out of that sharpshooter? Well... It's not just that Taker broke a submission hold. It was that he broke the submission hold, the unbreakable submission hold. Brett had been putting that sharpshooter on cats for about six years at that point. Nobody had ever gotten out of it, like actually powered out of it. Some guys were able to get to the ropes. Some guys were able to get help from a tag team partner or somebody running in to interfere, but nobody broke that hold on their own until The Undertaker. That shows you how much respect Brett had for him. That Taker, from what I understand, is the only guy to ever break the hold. I know he was the only guy in WWF to ever break the hold. And not just that he broke it, Brett sold it like he was shot out of a cannon when Taker basically catapulted him out of the sharpshooter, out of the ring to the floor. It was amazing. The sharpshooter was one of, if not the most, protected moves in all of pro wrestling. Just five months earlier, Stone Cold Steve Austin, bleeding profusely from the head. Steve Austin, the toughest SOB in the history of the World Wrestling Federation, passed out in the damn sharpshooter. Brett won the Intercontinental title, beating Kurt Henning with that sharpshooter. Brett beat Ric Flair for the world title with that damn sharpshooter. And The Undertaker broke it. I'd actually forgotten about this. This shows you how much you don't pay attention, you miss things. I'd forgotten about this. And if, if it seems like I'm selling this as a big deal, that's because it was a big deal. Because that's back when submission holds and certain moves were actually protected. Dudes actually sold some of these moves. They weren't immediately kicking out at one. They weren't getting thrown through tables and bouncing back to their feet. 
Instead, you have Brett putting on a move that essentially nobody can get out of until Superhuman Undertaker does it. He flies out to the floor, and then Taker, more than 20 minutes into this match, gets Brett in the ring and makes his first attempt to hit the tombstone. Brett was able to slip out, take him down. He then, and as his frustration at this point is growing because this dude just broke his damn unbreakable submission hold, attempts the sharpshooter again, except this time... He wraps Taker's legs around another ring post and then leans back on it. Brett ends up getting catapulted out of the hold a second time. Taker breaks the sharpshooter twice in the same damn match, sending Brett onto the floor on top of Shawn Michaels, who was trying to get Brett to break the hold. So now, Brett doesn't know what the hell to do. He's frustrated. Michaels is laid out on the floor for a few minutes. Brett's had enough. He goes and grabs a steel chair and you know what happens. He immediately winds up and blasts Taker in the face with it. Unprotected kill shot. This was 1997. You couldn't picture that happening today, but he so calmly swung that chair and went splat all over Undertaker's head. By this point, Michaels has finally started to stir on the floor. Brett has laid out Taker with this chair shot, covers him. Michaels slides back into the ring Hits the one, hits the two, Taker kicks at two and a half. Brett is absolutely furious. The crowd is going crazy by this point. Brett pulls Undertaker into the corner, commences to stomping on him. And that kind of sets up our very key sequence here. As Brett is working over the Undertaker in the corner, Shawn Michaels notices that blue chair that he just used to slap the hell out of Taker is sitting on the other side. And this is how the whole thing panned out. Maybe Michaels has had enough. Michaels was on the outside and did not see. Did not see. Oh, no. oh. Good God! Good God! That's right. You heard it correctly. For those of you not watching along on the WWE Network or who haven't found video of this on YouTube, Michaels questioned him about the damn chair. Brett at first said, no, man, I didn't use it. Blew him off, went back to stomping Taker. A frustrated Michaels grabbed him and said, you need to tell me what the hell's going on here. Either did you use the chair because I'll throw you out of here. To which Brett responds, F you, spits in his face. Michaels Angrily then swings the chair, missing Brett, just destroying Taker with a second unprotected chair shot to the head. And you heard the count. Brett covers Taker. Michaels, pissed off because he has to make the count or else he's out of here, hits the one, the two, the three for the pin and the win. Brett the Hitman Hart in 28-15 wins what was at the time a record-setting fifth WWF title. The winner of this bout and new World Wrestling Federation champion, Brett Hitman Hart. 
SummerSlam. And The Undertaker with one last glance back at Bret Hart as Bret Hart kisses the gold. And Bret Hart somehow is once again WWF Champion. Sean, by this point, is angrily stormed out of the ring. He's headed to the back. Taker, having just eaten two nasty chair shots in about 45 seconds, staggers down the aisle after him. Brett is reveling in the whole thing as debris fills the ring. People are screaming, booing. A whole hell of a lot of people headed for the exits out of anger. That entire match, especially re-watching it with 2017 eyes, was effing brilliant the booking on it was brilliant the execution on it was brilliant it was a damn good match overall psychologically and physically it was brilliant the finish was amazing because it set up maybe the biggest catch-22 you had seen in a long time you have your full-on babyface world champ your tweener babyface heel ref and your full-on heel challenger and the tweener heel ref doesn't want to run afoul of the babyface champ, and he hates the heel challenger. But he knows if he screws the heel challenger, he loses any chance he has at getting that world title back. Strictly by circumstance, the heel sets up a perfect scenario to put the tweener in position to A, cost the babyface the title, B, do so unwittingly, and C, be forced to humble himself before the guy that he hates to death and have to count that one, two, three for the pin and walked out of the ring. He didn't even hand him the damn belt. It was outstanding. And it set the table for the craziest damn three months in WWF history. And in retrospect set the table for where that company would go for the next five to seven years. It was also Brett's finest overall moment and maybe his last truly great one in pro wrestling because we know where this thing headed going forward into the fall. And I will announce it right now. The next retro review that we do will be coming at you in November. It will be the retro review of the 1997 Survivor Series. The night that changed everything. So in retrospect, where do we look at in terms of SummerSlam 1997? It doesn't stand out as an all-time great, but what it does stand out with is its impact. And more so, the last two matches. The rest of the show was about C-plus quality. The best of the early matches was Mankind and Triple H. Ken Shamrock and British Bulldog was what it was. The tag matches were disgraceful. Todd Pettengill was Todd Pettengill. Those last two matches were landmark matches. And another thing about these matches that I didn't really think about it until after watching it, there was also something very important about the main event. Shawn Michaels being the referee with Brett and Taker in the ring. That was the first match and the only match on that entire show where the principal participants of set match are still alive today. Go back through that card. Every match, its principal participants, at least one of them was deceased. Now, I know what you're saying. Triple H and Mick Foley are still alive. Yes. But China, China 
played a massively huge role in this cage match. She was the reason that there even was a cage. China passed away last year in the match between the Godwins and the Road Warriors. We lost Road Warrior Hawk in 2003. Gold Dust Brian Pillman, as I mentioned earlier, Pillman was dead two months later. British Bulldog and Ken Shamrock, Bulldog passed away in 2002, and we all know what happened to Owen Hart in 1999. Literally the only match where right now, if you were to do a retrospective on SummerSlam 97, the only match where you could get all the participants together at one place was the main event. Sean, Brett, Taker. They were the only ones left. Even Owen and Pillman coming down to interfere, they're both gone. Paul Bear is gone too. And it set up this really kind of eerie scene at the end of the night where Brett's celebrating in the ring. It's Brett, Pillman, Bulldog, and Owen. Because Neidhart wasn't with the company at this point. So it's Brett, Pillman, Owen, and Bulldog. Brett's the only one left. And that's just startling. It really is. It's almost, it's, 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 it's stunning to think about. The 20 years have passed, and so many guys are gone. That's one of those trippy things, man. It's like when I go back and watch these pay-per-views, even when you go back like 10 years and you see some of the guys who are no longer with us. But to go back 20 years, so 1997, at least one person in every match except for the main event has passed away. And in some cases, they were gone within a year or two years. That's wild. That's wild, man. It's fun being able to do these shows, though, to be able to look back and to be able to kind of have some fun. Because things have been very heavy. Shit has been really tough. I wanted to do this show last week, but life and other situations happened, and I didn't want to give short shrift to what occurred in Charlottesville by doing this show. And I didn't want to overshadow this show by doing it then. So we split them up. And it was fun. We're 48 episodes into this damn thing. And two away from the biggest milestone so far, which will be 50 episodes. And I can only do this with you guys' help. I appreciate the support I've gotten. So many of you listen. I found out down in New Orleans, a lot of y'all listen to this show. Do me a favor. Get on patreon.com slash Radio and become a patron. You ain't got to give me $20 or $30. $5 a month will work just fine. Let's keep the show moving. Y'all like me. Y'all like this show. Trust me. I appreciate you. Do that for me, and I'll continue to keep doing this for you. My name is J. Scott Smith. I'm telling you to take care of yourself. God bless. Always dare to be different. Always have your pet spayed or neutered. And we are out of here. Shouts out to Doc Illingsworth. Go to bandcamp.com. Look up Illingsworth. Get his music. Go to patreon.com slash JSC radio to support the show. Visit jscottsmith.com to check out what I've got going on. I'll see you next week for episode 49. Goodbye, everybody. He can pull down his trunks, pull down his little panties, bend over and I'll kiss him right on his ass, right in front of the wall. Get your blistex ready. Thanks for coming out. God bless you. Good night. Check it out. This is JSC Radio.
heard on the news about that five-year-old who found his uncle's gun. The kid didn't know it was loaded. I heard on the news about that 14-year-old girl who was bullied online for like a year. She couldn't take it anymore, so she got her dad's gun from his nightstand. I heard on the news about that guy who broke into someone's house, stole a gun from the hall closet. He accidentally shot his cousin in the head. She killed herself. And later, killed the owner of the store he was trying to rob. If you own a gun, you have a full-time responsibility. When you aren't using it, be sure it can't get into the hands of curious children, troubled teenagers, a thief, or anyone else who might misuse it. Your family, friends, and neighbors are all counting on you. Remember, always lock it up. For more information on firearm storage safety, visit ncpc.org. This message brought to you by the National Crime Prevention Council, the Bureau of Justice Assistance, and the Ad Council.